Welcome to the Business of Biotech, brought to you by Bioprocess Online and graciously sponsored by Cytiva, formerly GE Healthcare Life Sciences. This podcast series is handcrafted specifically for the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies. As you know, if you listen to our trailer, we've secured the commitment of many biopharma entrepreneurs with loads of experience building organizations, from securing financing to building all-star teams and company valuation, to navigating regulatory and process considerations for clinical stage production. Those are just a few of the topics we'll tackle in this series, and we're kicking things off with an authoritative biopharma industry luminary who's leveraged decades of big pharma experience to lead dozens of startup biopharmas to clinical success. Let's give it a listen. So uh, today, uh, Alan Shaw is joining us. Uh, thanks, Alan. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, thanks, Matt. Real pleasure to be uh, joining you guys. You know, yeah. in way of background for everybody, you know, I've been a, um, a four-time public company CFO. I've been at large companies like Serono when they were independent and the third largest biotech company in the world um, with three commercial therapeutic areas, about $2 billion of top-line revenue, and we're listed on both the Swiss and um, U.S. New York stock exchanges. We also had about 5,000 employees, and we had uh, sales in 90 countries. So I certainly know what good looks like. I know what big looks like. Uh, and more recently, I was at Syndax, a clinical stage oncology company that I helped lead uh, their IPO uh, with a bunch of other uh, great team members. Yeah. And uh, we had 18 people when we uh, did the IPO and I had about 40 people there when I left. So I uh, also know what being entrepreneurial is. I certainly know what rolling up your sleeves are. And I also know the limitations and the resourcefulness of, uh, and nimbleness that a, a, a young aspiring organization needs. Uh, current, currently, I, am a, I have a portfolio of activities and involved with several private biotech companies. Uh, so, you know, helping them professionalize their organizations, build out, think about critical matters like resource allocation, prioritization, and, and you know, um, making sure that they're aware of what their competitive edge are and making them aware of their blind spots. Um, you know, a lot of people know what they know, but they don't know what they don't know. I've also been a, uh, a five-time public company uh, uh, board of director. I used to be a uh, board chairman on a couple of occasions. used to think that was the worst part of governance until I uh, became the chairman of compensation, which is by far the most thankless aspect of all the governance. <laughs> and also, you know, I've... Uh, I've had a long-standing affiliation with Life Science Leader. I used to have a magazine column with the uh, with the magazine uh, called Deeper Dive CFO Insider's View of the Industry's Issues, and currently have the uh, the, the privilege and uh, pleasure, as well as burden, of serving on their uh, editorial advisory board. Yes, which is very much appreciated. I know uh, Rob Wright speaks quite highly of you, and he suggested that uh, we, we connect for this podcast. And that background is terrific, Alan, because uh, the point you made about knowing the, you know, knowing the entrepreneurial side but having the experience of a, of, of a high-level, you know, bigger uh, biopharma is, is key because uh, this, as you know, this podcast is dedicated to folks who are, you know, first-time CEOs leading new and emerging uh, biopharmas. And on today's uh, episode, it's my intention to uh, sort of preview the ensuing episodes by giving you just a couple of minutes, which I, I'm, I'm going to challenge the New Yorker in you to just spend a couple of minutes. <laughs> <laughs> 
on each of these topics, uh, and I'm going to ask you a specific question that kind of kind of previews and highlights the uh, the, the the episode uh, to come in this ten series. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, ten episode series podcast. Uh, so let, let's kick that off. And in, 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 uh, in our next episode, we're going to talk about uh, launching a business with, with the end in mind, which is something that probably doesn't happen a whole lot. You know, you're a first-time founder. You're focused on the science. You've got a, a fundraising. You, you know, you've got a therapy that has, like, some fundraising potential uh, in the works. Um, you're maybe not thinking about when it's time to start thinking about mapping out when you might seek an acquisition or, or go public or whether your strategy is best to just stay, stay private. Uh, so from your perspective, tell us when is it time as a, as a new CEO to start thinking about that and why? Yeah, yeah, you know, I think as uh, in the in the world of biotech, I don't think you ever have enough money, and you know, I think it's it's really important to think about, you know, your funding strategy and how you reduce your cost of capital. But I, I think to think that you only need five million dollars, or you just need ten million dollars, I mean, it does light the wick of the candle. But I think you need to think broadly speaking. You know, how do you risk your programs? And I think you also need to understand. And what I've seen commonly missed by a lot of young organizations is they come across some very interesting science uh, but you know it's sometimes lacking the uh, connection to you know uh, the clinical or commercial relevancy um, because this is the business of science and it's you know it's not academia and I'd say a lot of times younger companies are overly informed by academia mm -hmm. so therefore it's a lot of groupthink and there's really a lot of blind spots to the competitive advantage and simplistic questions of what your edges are sometimes overlooked. So I think that need, needs to be somewhat uh, fundamentally uh, baked into your considerations as you embark on your, on your, on your plan. You know, it's not, it's not a sprint. It's a, ma it's a marathon. I, I think the, um, the, the, the other thing that, that's, I think, really important to, um, to think about is I think people, when they embark, thinking, well, all I need is that partnership. You know, um, you're not, they're not necessarily thinking about, you know, how do you maximize the value of what you're doing. And I think when you start getting involved with sophisticated folks, they're going to try to assess, you know, your vision. You know, where are you going? And, you know, most people are going to want to have many shots on go. You know, your income shouldn't be just strategic. You know, you, you need to think about, you know, but you might need to take this to uh, the finish line. You know, you may need to take this thing longer. And, and I think that builds up succession planning considerations in terms of your management team. You know, it's just not you. People invest in teams. They invest in jockeys. You know, yep. choice between a, um, a, a great management team and a middling asset or a great asset and a middling management team, I would always take the former. The, the management team is going to figure it out. The inexperienced folks are going to somehow figure out a way to mess it up. So, you know, I think you need, you need to think about, you know, your team. You need to think about your optionality. And I think you want to, in, in that context, and I think this is probably the important, most important uh, takeaway in this, is that, you know, you really got to think about how you're going to build a company uh, for the long term. You know, if you think if you're going to think you're going to be able to just build something that you're going to flip, I think people are going to see through that. They're going to game you, and, and you're just not going to be credible. And it's going to translate in value at the end of the day. I think yeah. 
way, the best way, if, if an exit is your goal, I think the best way to go about it is building a long-term sustainable business. And if there's an interloper at the end of the day, so, so be it. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, you, you talked about funding, obviously, being a key part of the puzzle. So the, the episode that follows uh, that one will uh, focus on best practices on building your pitch. So just sort of a broad question there. It's time to seek, you know, as a, as a CEO of an emerging company, time to seek this important milestone of funding. What's your best advice to an emerging biopharmaceutical on building a pitch, building a pitch, building a pitch deck? I think there's a lot, a lot, a lot of different um, uh, inputs that you need to think about when you're doing a, a pitch deck. You know, uh, you know, you can't just go to Microsoft PowerPoint and pull out your pitch deck. You know, I think you need to think about your messaging. I think you also want to build a chorus. I think, again, one of the things that people sometimes overlook is the importance of medical affairs and the development of an SAB. And I'm shocked at the number of companies that don't have SAB. And it tells you a little bit about how you're approaching development and, and what are you doing in terms of bringing, uh, you know, real-world activities and perspective to the table to inform your development activities. It's also when investors are looking to um, corroborate what management's saying, you know, they're going to want to know who the KOLs are, who's involved, who are the investigators. And if you're going to try to start doing that at the, uh, in the middle of your financing efforts, that's a little late. Um, so, you know, that's something I think you need to think about up, up front. You also think about, your, you know, your publication strategy, you know, in terms of what you're doing, what can be published. And make sure you have your IPs battened down, too, before you go through your publishing. I've seen uh, unfortunate instances of people keen to publish without uh, getting that nailed down, believe, believe, believe it or not. Um, I, think in in, I think in addition to that, uh, which I think are fairly fundamental. It's really you got to answer some fundamental questions. You know, you, what is your competitive advantage? Uh, what's um, what is the competitive landscape, and where do you fit in on all of that? Um, you know, I think it's often easy to tell people, you know, why you're an interesting investment and, and why you might be different. But the other thing you need to really be mindful of is why now. Why should I be getting involved with you now? You know, and particularly when there's uh, um, a lot of op opportunities right now. You know, it's a competitive sport right now, raising money. You know, there's never been more money around and there's never been more people with their hands out. Uh, and, and, and everyone's got ADD. You know, at least that's how I approach all my, my engagements. You know, if you don't get it out early, uh, uh, it's going to get lost and it's going to get glossed over. So, you know, you need to get things buttoned down, too. You've you got to have your answers to the questions. You should be going through good rehearsals with what I would call friendlies. You know, everybody has their circle of friends. There may be some investment banks or analysts that you know that, you, that aren't going to rip your head off and that there's not going to be collateral consequences, but they can give you really, really good constructive feedback before mm -hmm. you, you, you get out there. I, I would also say that this is a reiterative re process that when you've done road shows, we've switched our deck 50 times in the process because as you deliver it, as you go through it, as you see people's reactions, there's a feedback loop and you need to be mindful of that feedback loop so you can incorporate it. So what I would say is that when you're going out, don't, don't hit 100 people at once. Be a little bit more metered because you're going to make the same mistake 100 times. Yep. So you want to you want to be a little bit more mindful of uh, you know that. Yeah, that, that's excellent advice. Um, 
You, you mentioned you kind of hinted a little bit at the market that we're in right now. And I mean, it's, uh, you know, we were pretty stable there for a while, but financial markets are, are once again uh, reminding us just how capricious they can be. Um, so we're going to talk in a specific episode down the line here on finding funding in fill in the blank, volatile times, bear markets, bull markets, bubbles, whatever we happen to be in at, the, at, at that particular time. When, when money's not raining the way that it was, you know, in 2006, as you mentioned, it's a very competitive sport. Uh, where should emerging bio leaders be looking? You know, I guess the first thing I would say is whether, whether your, your, uh, your bank accounts are overflowing or running thin, I would certainly suggest that you take the same disciplined approach to the way you allocate money. Uh, I've noticed over the years that people, when they uh, bank accounts swell, they're a little bit more lax, a little bit more disciplined, and, 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 and that, perhaps that's human nature, but I really would encourage people to continue to uh, deploy cash as, as, as diligently as possible, and when you're early like this, it should really be what's creating value, what is important, make sure your expenses are gated, uh, and protect yourself. I think extending your runway is, is probably the most important thing, is you don't want to run out of cash. And, um, and there's a tendency for people to get in front of their skis. They, they uh, uh, underestimate the time it's going to take to raise money. Um, and, and you want to maintain your business, business momentum. And, uh, and, 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 and that's all in the backdrop that time is the enemy. So that, you know, you're trying to solve for a bunch of uh, multifactorial things at the same time. Yeah. What I would say in terms of um, funding in volatile times you know, it's like blood, you know, cash flow is the most important thing in terms of maintaining a company's uh, operatable uh, capabilities. So, you know, I think you need to be resourceful, you need to be thoughtful. And, and again, I think it goes back to what I said earlier, it's about preserving choices. And, it, and, it, and it's all relative to where a company is in their capital formation. Uh, as, 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 a, as a private company, you know, there, there's certainly the traditional uh, pedigree investors, which make it generally easier to go public because, you know, you need to bring your own beer to the party and, and people use that as validation. You know, reverse merges become an opportunity that are, I wouldn't say, I guess they're becoming increasingly in vogue. They used to be viewed as a pariah. You know, I kind of viewed them as a little bit of akin to a breach birth, but you're being born still. And, you know, after you land on your feet, you know, you're as good as the guy that came out the other way. Um, so it, it's no, no, there's really no, no, no difference, but it's just not as elegant. And, yeah. you, and you need to develop an investor base, um, and you got to understand that there's a lot of wood to chop to get there at the end of the day. But, you know, that that's certainly become, and, and when you look at the fact that we've had a historical level of IPOs over the last six years, uh, I'd say more, probably about 50% of those companies are going to be likely to become zombie companies at the end of the day. So uh, there, there seems to be a long opportunity for reverse merge candidates. Not all of them come filled with uh, gas. But, uh, again, if you can bring your own liquidity uh, to those things, they're viable ways of getting out, and I think it also uh, enables you to think a little bit about, uh, you know, the best time to re how you reduce your cost of capital. Um, and I'm not sure this is a question you're going to ask me later or not, in in terms of going public or staying private. But um, you know, in, in that respect, you know, uh, I've, I've, I've 
given this a lot of consideration and have had to deal with this, particularly when we were looking to go out in, in 2016 with Syndax, where the market was really imploding at the time. It was probably, if you look at the last seven years, that was probably the worst year to do an IPO. And I remember when we went to launch our IPO, the front page of the, uh, <laughs> the Wall Street Journal that day said the IPO uh, market was closed. I remember my son uh, laughing, looking at me, he said, Dad, what's so funny? And I said, it's actually quite sad. We're going to be meeting with the board today and the bankers in order to launch our uh, IPO for next Monday. And this is what everyone's reading right now. Um, and everyone asked us, you know, why go now? Why, why are you doing this? And I think bottom line is you can't time the market. Um, you, you, you know, um, you want to be able to reduce your cost of capital. You have to also look at in terms of where your uh, timelines are. And, you know, if you get too close to them, people don't want to invest. If you wait till after some of those readouts, sometimes they're not bright lines. They can be gray. So, yeah. you know, you, you, need, you, you know, you, you know, so there's a lot of different considerations. And the other thing, too, is as a public company, when you have data readouts, you can pivot much better than a private company. You know, you can do a, a financing the next day that fundamentally reduces your cost of capital. So, you know, there's a lot of different factors uh, in terms of that. And I guess really the bottom line is you just simply can't time the market. And when you're thinking about going public, it's very distracting organizationally. And if you're on the runway waiting for the windows to open, you know, that can create a level of paralysis organizationally where nothing gets done. The Business of Biotech podcast is dedicated to helping new and emerging biopharma leaders navigate the organizational, financial, and regulatory aspects of the biotherapeutics market landscape. So is Cytiva, the company formerly known as GE Healthcare Life Sciences, and the gracious underwriters of this project. Find out how Cytiva is helping life science researchers and biopharmaceutical manufacturers evolve how new therapies and precision medicines are discovered made, and used at www.citiva.com. That's www.cytiva.com. Yeah, you can't, can't time the market, but one, one thing you can do is, uh, is build or attempt to build uh, the valuation of your company through your talent. So we're, we're going to talk in a later episode specifically about assembling a biotech all-star team. Um, help, help me understand, illustrate for me the, the direct line between uh, talent and, and company valuation. What's uh, priority number one as far as talent goes, and, and where do I find it? Yeah, this is the, this is the business of science. So, you know, I think you, you need to make sure that you've got, you know, for me, um, going past the CEO, probably the most fundamental position in the organization is a chief medical officer. Uh, I think that kind of helps tie a lot of this execution together. It ties medical affairs in. It, it, it reduces your execution risk. And, and, you know, it's no, no, no secret that it's probably the hardest position to find right now because there's more demand than, than, than overall supply. But, you know, I think everyone has their, their um, functional strengths, but they, you also have your general blind spots. So, you know, I think you need to... Um, I think work collaboratively in a non-siloed approach, which becomes increasingly challenged in this um, virtual company mentality that we go into where people are all are scattered about 
and you don't have the same kind of water cooler uh, conversations that you might uh, otherwise have. So, you know, effective communication and coordination is, is is key in order and have an open and an environment that stimulates an open dialogue. I think you also need, you know, thinking about it more from a functional perspective. You know, I think you need you need adults in the room, right? Uh, you know, I've been helping a lot of companies, and I kind of view this as helping them professionalize, uh, providing adult supervision and helping them identify what they don't know. I think we, um, so I, on, on that front, I think having a regulatory strategy makes sense. You know, time is the enemy, and if there's ways that you can do things thoughtfully on a regulatory perspective to squeeze time uh, and shorten the length of things or take advantage of, uh, of accelerations that the FDA may enable, to do, I think those are things that one should be uh, able to understand, and I think investors appreciate it. The development side is critical. You know, we, um, you know, in terms of operations, um, you know, you need good, good CMC and drug supply. Um, so, you know, my, my sense is, the, you know, for young companies, it's it's those are sometimes viewed as luxuries. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a, there's a movement now moving in towards fractionalization where you can really get, you know, highly qualified, uh, experienced folks who are involved with a handful of different companies. And candidly, that keeps that everyone benefits from that. Yeah. You are overhead, you bring in the right expertise. And because they're in the circle working with a whole bunch of other people, they're highly relevant to the different manufacturers or different other um, regulatory agencies. So therefore, they actually bring a lot more gravitas uh, to the table than you might otherwise uh, consider. The other, play, other area that I think doesn't really get a lot of appreciation. I think this speaks to culture, it gets to people, and it's about not just not just being able to recruit people, but to retain people, which particularly when you get into the Boston area, you know, that, that in itself is another competitive sport. Um, so, you know, I think human resources is, not, is an area that uh, helps set the tone. You know, if if you bring having a, a human resource person that has a seat at the table, I think everybody understands that that, that that's a proxy for where the people and the employees sit. So you know, it's I think that's that's important. And, and again, people view that as a luxury. And you know, I think when you're building a team, I think that's that's probably the most important investment that you you make at the end of the day. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting take. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have guessed that that would. Uh, I mean, you know, CMO, scientific, uh, intellectual property kind of stuff. I, I I could see coming, but the HR point is a it's an interesting one. And there's a lot of good fractional folks there too that can be helpful there. Yeah. Um, but that that definitely, I think you need to take a holistic approach to your organization. And I also think. And this isn't an infomercial for finance guys, but, you know, that, I think there's a lot of times where people think all you need is a controller, all you need is a bookkeeper. And that certainly keeps the trains running on time, no, no, no ifs, ands, and buts, and that's what people are caring about. But if you're looking at somebody who's going to, you know, challenge the resource allocation, provide a little value in terms of the prioritizations, um, and kind of connect things from an investor perspective that people may not see, you can save a lot of time and money if you if you get that kind of context incorporated up front. Yeah. And like I said earlier, you know, time time is the enemy, and and, you, and people look at the way you prioritize things, and they're figuring, you know, is if, if that's how you're going to spend uh, your money, 
you know, I guess that's going to be the way you're going to spend my money. And, um, yeah. And, you know, you, you, you indict, you're, you're indicting yourself unintentionally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we've, uh, yeah, we, we've, we've kind of gone through finance, HR, uh, organizational strategy, um, wrapping up the first half of this, uh, series. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about once these things are in place, knowing when it's time to, to leave the incubator. I mean, the incubator is a safe, kind of comfortable place, but ultimately growth limiting to a, a new company. What development and financial milestones do you look for uh, that, that make it clear to a new or emerging uh, biopharma CEO that it's, it's time to leave the nest? You, you know, I, I don't think there's a, a, a one-size-fits-all um, answer to that you know my, my general feeling is is that no one is investing in you because of your facility typically you know uh, you know again maybe labs and other it depends on again on the nature of the organization but you know to me you, you want to keep your overhead low you know uh, there's no value in GNA expenses um, so my, my, my I guess my compass would be to keep overhead low I think you know in uh, in terms of when you get run out of space, when you want to try to get people more under one roof. And from what I've observed, there's a lot of what I would call uh, halfway houses that they, you can leave the incubator, but you get into uh, uh, the science parks or organizations, you know, the Alexandria uh, uh, complexes offer a great location for companies to move out where you're still kind of in an, uh, a collaborative environment with other companies. Um, you know, there may be other cost-effective options, you know, um, relative to the, the example I just uh, provided. Um, but I, I think it's really when you're my, – my personal perspective is when you've got a pathway to really de-risking your programs and moving into the clinic, strength mm -hmm. is the, the best time. I mean, it I, I realize people may, again, depending on what you're doing, you know, you may have more traction as a preclinical company, but I, I would certainly uh, wait until you, you need to and keep your expenses down and, and take advantage of the things that the, uh, these organizations provide for you because, again, it's, it gets dilutive when you start moving out of those things and you're spending your time and you're spending your money on things that don't create value. Yeah. And I, I forget that. Yeah, that, that's a good good segue point. At, th at that point uh, in our in our series, we're going to segue into more uh, quality, uh, regulatory, and CMC concerns. Um, so that's that's an excellent point you just made to kind of transition to um, the 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 kickoff of of uh, of season two in this series. We're going to kick that off with uh, an episode on the quality data necessary for FDA submissions. Um, when you're a new CEO, maybe a first-time CEO of Biopharma, and you've never seen the regulatory infrastructure, the regulatory uh, animal, if you will, uh, that, that can equal risk, um, at least in your mind. Uh, how does quality data serve to de-risk the, uh, the impending CMC and, and, and process scallop exercise? You know, there's you know, you got to be careful about garbage in, garbage out. So you do want to make sure you have the the right controls, right oversight. You know, I, I would I, I would encourage people that they think if they uh, provide uh, outsource things to a CRO that they're uh, abdicated uh, of that. 
and uh, that that's a really I think a misunderstanding. And you know, I think they should you know manage the CRO. They should certainly have uh, uh, clinical uh, research assistants that are. Uh, working with these guys and, and providing that level of oversight. Um, one of the companies I was involved with, we were working with a um, uh, an affiliation of the NIH, and we, we we threw additional resources in there from a data resource perspective in order to up make sure that it was a beyond approach. And that's not something to be un underestimated at the end of the day. Um, and, in, in, in terms of that. So I, I think, and, and I also, I'd also uh, encourage people because again, going back to time of the end is the enemy, which I think is a general theme here is I would not be shy to make sure you've got the right regulatory uh, advisors, um, whether they're in-house, whether they're outsourced, whether they're part-time, but uh, you, you do not want to be doing this uh, without, without the right, right chaperones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had alluded earlier to uh, uh, you know outsourcing not just um, services but but talent. You know, specific people. The virtual company idea, and you just mentioned it again. You know, I uh, do you see that trend? This is sort total uh, total diatribe. I'm going going off on a tangent, <laughs> and I don't want to go too far down it. But do you see that trend perhaps uh, catching on more today? given the, the current situation with, with coronavirus, for instance? I mean, do you, do you see that kind of fueling the virtual biopharma trend? I, I, think, I think the horse is kind of out of the barn. I think the coronavirus kind of it, it, it doesn't impact it. And I think, at least from what I'm observing, the biotech stocks are holding up better. I don't think the investment community is that, that smart. <laughs> but I... Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but I, I, I think it, it may cause it to be uh, more proliferate in other places. But I, um, Do you think in that space it's already already on the way? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. Uh, cool. I, I this is the more more than less. Yeah. All right. Good. All right. So uh, we're going to continue season two talking about good manufacturing processes. And when you look at GMP, you know it's it's sort of a I, I characterize it as prescriptive yet the 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 means to the end is, is somewhat flexible. So um, what's your best advice for new biopharmas uh, to maintain uh, flexibility in the capacity and production decisions that they make yet still reach those GMP milestones that are so necessary? Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a great question. And, and certainly with the advent of um, gene therapy, where now people are starting to think about bringing some of these processes in-house, it, it's it's a question that that's uh, being being debated more than it than it's than it's ever been, but as a general observation uh, in terms of um, uh, CMC, I, I I would characterize it as arguably one of the most underappreciated functionalities in all of life sciences or in biopharma. Um, I think it's akin to kind of like the offensive line of a football team where no one seems to care until there's a penalty on the field. It's not one of the sexy areas. It's one of these things that, you know, it's a living definition of where risk management could really be done up front to avoid all, all these um, infractions, uh, which are at, at record levels coming out of the FDA in turn. Um, so with that, and, and, and consequently, it's um, if you think about gating factors in terms of getting your drugs approved after safety and efficacy, it's it's CMC. So it's an area that I think people should really pay pay uh, much closer attention to. 
make sure they have the right professionals in place to to address that because it, it's an issue and it's going to be an issue too because VCs are going to be challenging this. So you need to really um, have your arms around it. And and can and candidly, one of the things that I think uh, companies, in period but I think young companies have probably a higher uh, inclination, is that the availability of drug supply is probably one of the greatest rate-limiting uh, gates in terms of initiating clinical studies. And if you don't have that drug supply sorted out in a timely manner, you're going to miss your timelines. Missing timelines have implications in terms of credibility with investors. And candidly, your timelines move out. You're still burning overhead. And therefore, you're actually burning your you're you're reducing your cash runway at the end of the day. Mm. So again, again, these things can be extremely, extremely uh, uh, costly. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's uh, you, you kind of tackled episodes two and three around GM, GMP and, and CMC at the same time there. But when it comes to, to uh, CMC considerations for first in human studies, you know, uh, you, you've been there. What? Uh, here's a funny question. <laughs> What happens to a, a first-time biopharma CEO's blood pressure uh, around the, the risks associated with CMC considerations and first-in-human studies, and how do they mitigate that risk? Well, I, I guess depending on uh, the, the upfront talks, that will reduce some of your uh, anxiety. You know, if there's a history of monkey fatalities or voting <laughs> deaths, you know, I would assume you're going to be a little bit more anxious. Yeah. <laughs> And, and would question the wisdom of moving forward. But um, so, you know, I, I, th I think one, I think there's a couple of interesting considerations. I mean, I think one is you obviously you've got to make sure your tox profiles are done. And, and I would, I would encourage you to get those things uh, to the extent it can be done cost effectively. Try to do that before you scale up on your manufacturing because it would really be a problem if you invested all this money and then, you, you know, and then you're doing your talks before you go into man and then you just have to throw everything out. So, you know, I think you need to be thoughtful about the gates again. And I think the other thing, um, and whether it's first in human or as you're trying to line up your studies, you know, you're doing a safety study and you're trying to make sure you got enough supply to move into phase two, which seems to be a... Uh, a consideration you, you should really just make and, and if you're in oncology in particular where if you're doing safety people are still looking for signals and if you're not getting a signal there you know your your phase two may not have the legs or the justification you know you i think you don't want to commit a half a million dollars a million dollars whatever it might be to buy the drug product before you know that you're going to be definitively doing that study so, you know, making sure you've got those gates in front before, because that, that will also create a lot of anxiety to first-time CEOs that you've just wasted a, a million dollars on a study that you're not going to be doing. Yeah. yeah. Right, explaining that to your investors. Sure. Yeah, right. Okay, and then we're going to, uh, we're running short on time here, but real quick, I want to I touch on the, the wrap-up episode. We're going to talk about gap analysis and next steps. So, um, you know, ass assessment of your current development status, identifying holes, and then uh, using that to guide, guide next steps. Um, give us a little on that and maybe tell us, uh, in your experience, what mistakes you you've seen made there and how to avoid them. You know, I think, I think it's, it's, it's just as it's healthy. To, uh, exercise to continu continually reassess your organization's strengths, 
weaknesses, uh, opportunities, and, and, and threats, you know, the traditional SWOT analysis. Um, I, I think that, that, because it's a very fluid environment, I think people really forget about the, that this is a, a competitive sport. There's a, uh, a lot of competitive competition out there, and you need to understand the relevancy of your activities. You know, this is the business of science, uh, particularly in oncology. You know, I mean, it's, it's breathtaking how quickly these, these programs are moving and how, the, how good science is being cannibalized by good science. And, and it's a challenge. You know, you're making this business decisions. You're allocating capital that really you're looking at five, ten-year timelines from uh, – from when you kick off these programs to when you hope to get to the commercial finish line. And there's a lot of different things that can uh, get in the way along the way. And I think you need to be mindful of those things and have the organizational um, sophistication, uh, awareness, and confidence to pivot when, when things need to pivot. You know, I think a wise man once put to me that if you um, make a wrong turn and continue going down the road, it's still a wrong turn. Yeah. And, and the longer you take to identify that U-turn, you know, there's longer time to, to catch up, and you're throwing good money after bad money. I think one of the things that people have, a, uh, I, what I would suggest is that kill your, anything that's not working, kill it, you know, and, and move forward. You know, keeping things around because you're afraid of what it means or you, you think you need your job, you know, you, that, that, those are not sustainable strategies at the end of the day. And to me, it's about your credibility and your integrity. And if you talk truthfully and transparent and, and, and have a plan, right? You want, again, it goes back to my comments earlier about optionality and choice and, and, and looking at how if this door is closed, you open up this one and you open up this window if this is closed. And, but I, I think you, you do need to gate things, and, and you need to kill things early. Awesome. I'll tell you what, Alan, I, uh, I'm pretty sure I gave you the hardest job uh, of the entire series in that I asked you to come on and spend a few minutes talking about every single topic we're going to cover in the upcoming uh, podcast series. So I, I really appreciate your willingness to do that. Uh, Rob told me that this guy will do anything, so he, he, he said he can, he can do anything. I appreciate your, uh, your insight. Uh, my my pleasure. It, it, it was a lot of fun, and if I could be helpful on any of the other episodes, feel free to uh, ring my bell. I will. I will. I'm going to take you up on that for sure. I'll I'll be back in touch with you to to to, to map that out. But in the meantime, Alan Shaw, thank you uh, for joining us, and uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Pleasure. Cheers. That's Alan Shaw. I'm Matt Piller, and this is The Business of Biotech, produced by Bioprocess Online and graciously sponsored by Cytiva, formerly GE Healthcare Life Sciences. If you like what you heard here today, subscribe, give us five stars, and be sure to subscribe to the Bioprocess Online newsletter at bioprocessonline.com. Tune in next time for a deep dive on making your exit plan, whether that's seeking an IPO, a merger, or staying private from day one with Dr. Francois Nader. In the meantime, thanks for listening.